energy today, guys, is really great. I can just feel feel the happiness and energy exuding from oozing, both of you. oozing <laughs> energy. Well, I I am just way too caught up in how much of a hostage I look. I continue to look like a hostage. The good news is this weekend I'm actually going to have something behind me. I wish that I had as nice of a backdrop as Brett do- Brett does, though. It looks like a very sunny day there in New York City, Brett. <laughs> Yeah, when I came into the office today, because I am busy judging the Fabby Awards, uh, which will be on display at the National Restaurant Show, the big show, as we call it. Big now. show this in May. Chicago, in May, I am uh, one of the judges. My colleague from Restaurant Business, Pat Kobe, is going to come into the office, and we're going to test a whole bunch of items uh, to the bemusement of everybody else in the office who's just seeing these, like, trolleys of packages coming in uh it's much better than the last two years when i did it from my home to the disgruntlement of my neighbors is it going to make a meal brett will you have all the 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 pieces of a meal or is it like snacky things like what kind of food are you eating it's a lot of uh plant-based meat substitutes and seafood substitutes and some baked goods but there are also a number of sauces for us to try, so and and gluten free flatbreads and stuff. So we'll be able to assemble a nice little sort of tasting. I remember it's not, it's last year you got some really good yogurt. Oh, that was incredible! That yogurt that was so good. Um, if anything comes close to that this year, I will be delighted, and I'll sing a little song. Although I did have little teeny tiny. Uh, sort of chocolate cookie pies that um, are quite tasty. Hmm. Well, that's a perfect segue into Valentine's Day, which you two are appropriately dressed for. For those listening, Brett and Sam are both wearing red. I am wearing gray, so I did not get the memo. Uh, We really should have coordinated, guys. I'm Uh, wearing salmon, Holly. This is (laughs) salmon, which is perfect for for, uh, Valentine's Day. I'll eat some salmon on Valentine's Day. It sounds great. Well, and interestingly, or not that interestingly, but Valentine's Day is also Ash Wednesday this year. And so a lot of salmon is going to be added to menus for Lent. Great point. Wow. Almost like I did that on purpose. Yeah, you're on trend, Sam. You really understand it. Guys, I think I'm going to give up dessert for Lent this year. Ooh. Yeah. It was really between that and alcohol. And well, let's just say dessert one. (laughs) (laughs) You know, a funny thing about alcohol and Lent is that St. Patrick's Day always falls during Lent. And it does. You're right. Always. And the Archdiocese of, of uh, Boston and New York City uh, always grant a special dispensation so that people can get loaded on St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> anyway, uh, obviously Boston and New York have very large Irish-American populations, and so... This is part of a celebration, and I guess the papacy is okay with that. I love the bending of the rules. And you so can't fun. eat – it's no meat on Fridays, right? Well, that's yes. the – yeah, the Catholic. That's the Catholic part of it, yeah. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm Jewish, so I'm not necessarily supposed to know these Me too. Things, that is why I, I'm asking these questions. <laughs> I, I, am, I am senior food and beverage editor of Nation's Restaurant News, so I do know people's eating habits. It's sort of my job. 
Well, as the resident Protestant, I've just always grown up doing Lent. Uh, I don't know if I'm supposed to. I don't. Is that primarily Catholic? I don't know. My mom just ingrained that in me. So, what kind um, of Protestant are you, Sam? Methodist. <laughs> I grew up Methodist. Yeah. I, I know Episcopalians are pretty pretty Lent focused. But maybe that's it. I think my mom might have been Episcopalian growing up. So maybe that's it. Anyway, we took a real well, turn. I Here we talk go. About Valentine's Day, and you guys really <laughs> threw it off course. <laughs> we're, we're probably not supposed to talk about religion on the podcast. That's all right. I don't know. We're, I mean, it's a real food association here. We can, that, we'll save that for another pod, getting into all the religious part of it. But Holly, let's talk about restaurants. <laughs> so I've spoken with Brett and Leanne, who are two of our intrepid editors, and we're all going to be in the office on Valentine's Day. So we're having a little champagne party um, for ourselves, nobody else in the office, just the three of us. Um, so that's how we're spending Valentine's Day. Very excited for it. Um, but a lot of restaurants are doing some interesting promotions. Uh, Brett just filed Menu Tracker. This week, you guys will see an array of heart-shaped and pink foods on menus, which is fun for me because I like both hearts and pink. I don't like Valentine's Day, but I like the color pink a lot. So I was excited to look at this Menu Tracker. Um, and people are also rolling out like interesting promotions. Like Shake Shack has um, a really cool Valentine's Day meal in Los Angeles and um, so we're seeing really cool things. I mean, what are you guys thinking about Valentine's Day this year? It's really close to the Super Bowl. There's a lot going on there. It's Lent or Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. It's a real big, like, three days. And yeah, I mean, it's – it's well, it's interesting because it's um, – yeah, like, when you think about the Super Bowl, one of the biggest days of the year for many restaurants, particularly wing and chicken – or wing and pizza restaurants. Um, Valentine's Day, one of the biggest days of the year for certainly fine dining and full-service restaurants and White Castle because they like to do their thing with Valentine's Day, too. And it works for um, Never, Yeah, never forget. I got to get in on that someday. Um, I'm sure Katie would love that. Um, but um, it's there's like a real uh, – and it's a perfect time. January and February, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but they – suck they're terrible they're the worst months right like winter is awful and this is coming from a guy whose birthday's in january i grew up thought, thinking january was great because my birthday but really as a as an adult i've really come around on these two months are worthless and we're all just holding on to get to spring right so in the midst of that though to have the super bowl to have valentine's day um they're really i mean they they are saviors for the restaurant industry because the other thing about winter is weather has a direct impact on restaurant sales, if it's raining, if it's snowing, people choose to stay inside. There's there's hard evidence of that. There's data to back it up. So um, I, it's it's great to have these events. As much as you may eye roll the Super Bowl, and certainly this year I am sorry, Chiefs and 49ers fan, but fans, but I am probably not watching this year. It's just I can't. Um, but like as I roll it all you want, like the restaurant industry, uh, this is a real boost to have these and to have them back to back, especially, uh, is great. And so to be able to ride the coattails is smart. I mean, if you do a marketing promotion, something around these events, um, you know, you, you obviously it's competitive. Everybody wants to grab that business for these two quasi holidays. Um, you know, you got to do something to get, get the attention of folks to come to you and not to your competitors. So you, you may already be too late if you're listening to this now and thinking to yourself, you're right, I should do something. You're kind of late. <laughs> Think about it for 25 though, 2025. Although Valentine's day is interesting, especially in uh, full service dining, especially at the higher end, because you're going to be full. You're going to be full with a lot of people who don't go out to eat very often and don't really know how to act. And it's a lot of irritating two tops who are under a lot of stress because 
like they must uh, impress their significant other somehow. So I hear, I don't really know. I don't do Valentine's Day. But nonetheless, every single restaurant markets Valentine's Day as a come make your reservations for Valentine's Day, even though they're going to be full with customers that they don't especially like. So if, if someone could give me an explanation for that, I'm not asking you, Sam and Holly, unless you know, but if, if our listeners would like to send me an email at brett.thorn at informa.com and explain this to me, that would be really great. Well, Sam, do you go out on Valentine's Day? You're married. You know, you have you have a significant other. No, that's a I don't I can't remember the last time I would have gone out on a Valentine's Day. I mean, obviously, with kids, it's a lot harder. You got to line up a babysitter and the babysitters are in high demand on Valentine's Day. I think we tend to be more of the thought that we'll just do a weekend around Valentine's Day. Um, so as to take advantage of available babysitters and less crowded restaurants, because, yeah, I mean, I've been married for almost 14 years. I don't, I mean, I, I need to show my love to my wife every day. I can't say it just for Valentine's day, right? You get to a certain point where the cynicism of it is just, I don't know. It's not for me. Well, and Valentine's day is a big breakup day as, as we come to learn, like there's been a lot of stories about relationships end on Valentine's day and Mm -hmm. a number of chains are, are actually, um, capitalizing on that with special breakup deals or, Come in if if you got dumped. You know, in the case of, of it's PF Chang's, right? That's giving free dumplings if you got dumped. So that's fun. So like I think it's smart to capitalize on something like that, where it's like just the cynicism. You're just like I think that's better to capitalize on. Anyways, before we get too deep into this, because I think Brett and I could easily talk about all of this for hours, and I'm sure we will next week in the office. Um, let's talk about Chipotle. Because that was a big story this week. Chipotle saw these incredible numbers from their fourth quarter earnings. They were like 10% above where the rest of the industry was pretty much. Everybody else was negative. We saw McDonald's report. That wasn't great. We saw Starbucks. That wasn't great. And now Chipotle just blew everyone out of the water. Um, And what do you guys think about this? I mean, Alicia Kelso was talking with me about how it's both the trade up and the trade down effect that Chipotle is benefiting from. And McDonald's price hikes, which Chris Kemchinski talked about on the call, um, how those price hikes are actually benefiting Chipotle. Um, so what do you guys kind of think is is going on behind this? And what do you think the future of Chipotle is going to hold? Yeah, that, that trade up and trade down is so interesting because I, I remember this happening to Chipotle in the Great Recession as well, which was – you know, in in that uh, recession of 2008, 2008 to 2010 or 11, um, you had a lot of folks who were um, going the value route. Uh, and if they were typically more of a higher end diner, the higher income diner wanting to go value, they traded down to fast casual. Simultaneously, if you wanted a nice meal and you were a typical QSR customer, you traded up to fast, to fast casual. So the same effect seems to be going on. However, caveat that's not broadly true for the fast casual industry as far as I know. I mean, Chipotle just occupies rarefied air here um, because it's Chipotle. They've always seemed to prove that they can draw customers even in the hard times. And what's really so fascinating about this is, yeah, Holly, to your point, I mean, traffic across the industry, I believe the information came from Placer AI that um, traffic is down one and a half percent or something like that. 1.6. 1.6. And that's getting a little bit better because I think it was down like 4% in uh, Q3. Um, but it's still 
bad. It's still negative. We hear from a lot of restaurants in their earnings reportings and otherwise talking about the need to drive traffic to restaurants this year. We've talked a lot about how there's value um, galore in the restaurant industry right now. There's discounting, sure, but there's also just a lot of general marketing and promotions emphasizing value because everybody's trying to get traffic back to their restaurants. But not Chipotle. I mean, this is really um, such a, a rarity. Chipotle's transactions are up 7.4%. I mean, their same-store sales are up 8.4%, um, th- these being Q4 numbers. And it's just – it's it's remarkable. It's incredible. And it seems to be, according to Chipotle, the direct effect of a lot of the emphasis they've placed on um, training their employees on some new recruiting uh, methods they've put in place, training um, their new employees, Um, their turnover is down. Um, And so, uh, you know, look, just to um, be completely transparent, uh, I, I, you know, call it four or five years ago, I, I feel like there was a perceived notice in the lack of, or the decline of quality at, at Chipotle. I, and I'm not the only one who's saying, that. I don't think I'm letting the cat out of the bag on this one. That generally a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people I know have said, hey, Chipotle is not as good as it used to be. Um, and I think they probably started to get a little bit too um, focused on convenience, right? They really went hard on the Chipotle lanes, building these drive-thrus. They really went hard on digital sales, really going hard on um, all of this, um, convenience-oriented operations, which made sense because Brian Nickel came from Taco Bell, becomes CEO at Chipotle, and sees this opportunity to essentially uh, adopt QSR operations in a fast, casual concept with higher quality food. Um, and so now, I think as they put a lot more of that emphasis on training the employees, recruiting high-quality employees, taking care of them, they've rolled out some more um, uh, AI and robotics to assist their employees, not replace them, all of that seems to be leading to um, more satisfied customers, people maybe coming back to Chipotle. If they had thought previously the food was not as good, maybe they're, they've changed their mind. Um, Chipotle continues to drive. I mean, they ha- now have over a thousand Chipotle's, which is incredible. I mean, you know, I've been in this industry long enough, Brett, you too, maybe not you, Holly, oh, maybe you have. I, they used this, they swore off drive through. Uh, for the longest time. I mean, they poo-pooed it for the longest time, and they have a thousand of them now. Um, so it's just remarkable the way that they're bringing together convenient um, operations, um, the digital focus they'd had for many years, and now really, I think, coming back around to the high-quality food um, that is um, underlined by this better training of their staff. Um, all of that seems to be coming together now alongside um, the trade down and the trade up effect that Alicia talked to you about Holly. So I think all of that is probably what's to, to thank for the incredible traffic increases, but also it's just Chipotle. It, it does have a lot of loyal fans. Well, and Chipotle has managed to stay top of mind with customers. You know, they're good at, at doing just enough menu innovation and promotion to uh, keep customers aware of them and interested and often uh, things that don't require a lot of uh, actual innovation like different types of diet-oriented customizable bowls and occasionally a new protein, things that that can be uh, implemented in the system without a lot of um, hiccups or operational difficulties. Well, so, you know, everybody knows I love Taco Bell with a passion. 
when I ordered from Chipotle the other night after they released their earnings and I was like, they were top of mind for me. So I ordered Chipotle and it was like, I got it delivered and with tip, my burrito was $15. And I was like, that's a great deal considering it was delivered to my door. It was still hot. I even got extras on the burrito. Like the burrito was like $12.50 and it was $15 to get it delivered with tip to my house. And I tipped 20%. I don't, I don't skimp on that. Um, but I thought that that was pr- like, I was super impressed because when I order from Taco Bell, I could spend like $10 on food and it'll end up being like $19. And so I think that Chipotle's value play when it comes to delivery is great. And it's quality too, right? I mean, like value is not just price point. Value is, of course, bang for buck, right? So like when you consider that it was delivered, which is convenience, that is higher quality food to Taco Bell. No offense, Taco Bell will love you. But yeah, I mean, higher quality food and combine that with price point. Um, that is value. That's part of the value equation. And and I think Chipotle will continue to really own that. I mean, the other part too, uh, that files under convenience is just their pure um, uh, availability across the country. I mean, for my own family, you know, Tuesdays, Taco Tuesday, of course. And we've got Chipotle's all around us. And so, and, and my kids like Chipotle. So, you know, even though um, I like Chipotle, I don't love Chipotle. Uh, love you, Chipotle. But, you know, anyway, I'm getting on a tangent here. Um, I have options. Let's just say I've had other options that if I, it was my preference, I might choose something else. My kids love it and it's right there. It's so easy. And then combine that with what you're talking about, Holly, which is that value equation. Again, all of these things come back around to why it's doing so well. And I just think Taco Bell occupies a different place, right? Taco Bell is more of the quick drive-through, super cheap, super value orientation. It's also a very distinct flavor profile of like, I'm in the mood for, you know, whatever, double-decker taco or, um, you know, whatever. So I like that you play references from 90s Taco Bell uh, items. Because remember, Double Decker, that was my that was my thing. That was my taco. That is still my go-to. I was so glad when they brought it back recently. Anyway. Anyway, yeah. let's move on because I'm going to get too hungry, though we are about to talk about burgers, but I don't like burgers as much, so it's fine with me. Um, and I also did like Burger burgers. Showdown last week, and so I'm, like, really over burgers right now. I've seen a lot of burgers. Um, so, Brett, why don't you tell us about the burgers that are going on and how they're kind of revamped. I mean, you wrote this great feature for our magazine with Alicia Kelso, and maybe you could just give us kind of an overview of what's happening in the burger space. I think first we need to revisit the idea, Holly, that you don't like burgers. I don't not like burgers. I just don't love burgers. I get it. Okay. That's, that's cool. That's fine. So the way that different uh, chains have innovated their, their burgers is interesting. Uh, several of them have moved toward the smash style burger. Uh, which is in, it's interesting that Smashburger as a chain that kind of kind of got that style of burger where you press the patty down and it gets nice and and sort of a little crunchy uh, and crinkly edges. Uh, they're not doing that well, but a lot of the other uh, chains are are adopting that style. Uh, Jack in the Box actually hasn't changed its core burgers, but they introduced a new burger, uh, the Smash Jack, that was supposed to be a six-week LTO, and it was a two-week LTO because they sold them all. Um, And so they're going to bring them back and maybe use that innovation on other burgers going forward. Uh, But they changed a lot. They changed the kind of meat, the grind of the meat, the preparation. They brought in new equipment. 
uh, and really changed a lot, whereas McDonald's didn't change much. They improved the buns, but the all of the meat and everything else is the same. They just changed a number of things about how you make the burgers. For example, they only put six frozen patties on the flat top instead of eight. And that means that they cook more consistently. They're going to be hotter when they get to the customer. And the, the griddle doesn't... Uh, doesn't cool down as much because you only put six patties on instead of eight. And I think most importantly, they're adding onions to the, during the cooking rather than putting on top of the burger when they're assembling the sandwich. So that's a, uh, that's a significant difference. And it, uh, apparently that's what they used to do in the olden times. And then, you know, over the course of the years, they, they stopped doing that and they brought it back. And then there's mellow mushroom, which also uh, after figuring out what their, their customers wanted, uh, also went to the smash style, as did Red Robin. And Red Robin made a huge investment. They got rid of their conveyor belt grills and introduced flat top griddles also. And they're in the process of updating the, uh, all, all of the uh, ingredients on their burgers, which is important because the full name is Red Robin Gourmet Burgers and Brews. They have to be... Uh, they have to be gourmet burgers. Uh, and it's interesting, they also hired a new chef, Brian Sullivan, who worked with their CEO, J.G. Hart, at California Pizza Kitchen. So it's a reunion of sorts. It's a lot of weird uh, pizza burger combinations going on here. A pizza chef who went to Red Robin and Mellow Mushroom with – I just couldn't have told you that Mellow Mushroom had burgers. Here I am finding that out. Um, yeah, I mean, look, the competition's yeah, stiff today. The competition for burgers in particular um, is is really tough. And so if you're not bringing your A-game on quality, you're not in the consideration set for the customers. We went through that better burger trend of, gosh, I guess about 10 years ago now. Um, and that introduced a flood of fast casual burger concepts to the market. So, of course, you've got the major QSR players. You've got those Better Burger Fast Casuals. And like Red Robin, you still have a, a good amount of these full-service, more experiential um, kind of burger concepts. And, um, you know, if you don't have a quality burger, you have a lot – there are a lot of other options for your customers to go to. So I'm guessing that's a part of it. But, yeah, I mean, to Holly's point, like so much focus has been on chicken lately. Um, and there's probably a bet here that Americans will come back around to beef. I mean, look, beef didn't go anywhere necessarily, but chicken is the number one protein probably by far. I don't know, Brett, you could tell me it's probably by far chicken's the number one, but eventually people get sick of it. And I don't know. So like if you, if you bring a quality beef, uh, product and a quality burger, um, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be in the consideration set. Then you win on the other factors. You win on the hospitality, you win on the, um, you know, toppings, um, you win on the rest of your menu experience, all those things. And, um, so that, that's what this strikes me is everybody's just retooling the quality component to their burger. And we do pretty sure we consume more chicken, but we consume chicken in a lot of different forms. Whereas I'm almost positive that a hamburger remains the most popular meal for lunch and dinner in America. Mm. And so we eat a lot of burgers. Makes sense. Well, haven't McDonald's chicken sales equaled their beef sales at this point, if not surpassed it? Like it's pretty close that, and they only introduced chicken 2019, the chicken, bur the chicken, not chicken burger. Well, they've had chicken forever. Um, but but their they chicken sandwich. upgraded that yeah. McCrispy 
um, only recently, yes. And and I, I assume most chicken eaters at McDonald's get McNuggets because they're McNuggets. Uh, and, and actually, McDonald's sales of chicken and beef have been at or close to parity for a while. I remember having this conversation with their corporate chef from long ago, Dan Coudreau, who also, by the way, now has a pizzeria in the suburbs of Chicago. So. Hey, three times and <laughs> it's a trend. Yep. I mean, they're our favorite food. So, you know, to have pizza and burger go back and forth, uh, along with wings. Although people don't have a lot of burgers and wings. A lot of pizza and wings, but not a lot of burgers and wings. You're right. Interesting. Hmm. But anyway, they've been at, at parody for quite some time at McDonald's, or close to it. I do like the McNuggets from McDonald's. I mean, I haven't had them in years, but one year when we were going to what is now Create, but what was previously Muffso. Um, I met up with our former editorial director and she made me go and get a McDonald's in the airport before we got into our car um, to leave and go to Muffso. So um, we have a lot of McDonald's memories at this company. We are big fans. Um, and I Why? like the chicken McNuggets. Why do you need McDonald's at the airport? There's a McDonald's everywhere. Because she just needed it right then, and she made yes. me get something, too. <laughs> hey, a craving is a craving. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you got to do what you got to do. I don't love hamburgers. I also don't love chicken. I'm not, like, a big – I don't know. I like fish a lot, so. Are you American? I'd, I'd be really good at Lent. So do Lent. Do Lent. I don't think Jews can do Lent, but that's a whole other topic. Aren't you also partly Catholic, though? Not to tell everybody everything. Wow, about back you. to the religion. <laughs> I mean, we're not saying which is the one true faith. That's what you're supposed to avoid. Right? <laughs> well, anyway, we were talking about burgers. Shall we transition right. into our burger showdown? Holly? No, I was going to say, let's just let's yes. keep it going into our burger showdown. So um, we've had these showdowns uh, for a little over a year at this point. Um, and I'm sure that our lovely listeners have seen it on our website, on our Instagram, on our LinkedIn. These are basically, we pick between eight and 10 brands, sometimes a little less, sometimes a little more. Um, and we do profiles and videos on them. Um, and then we let our viewers, readers, whatever you want to call yourselves, um, vote on the chains on Instagram and LinkedIn. And so it's a series of voting and and levels. And so we vote from eight to two to a winner. Um, and so Sam, do you want to talk a little bit about what this specific showdown is and kind of what the brands hold for the industry? Sure. Yeah. So our, our burger showdown, um, you know, I, I guess to start with sort of clarifying the parameters of a showdown, um, because if you're a burger brand out there who did not end up on our list on the showdown, it is not because it's a vote against you. It is purely because there are hundreds of burger brands out there um, and we could only pick what, seven, eight of them. Um, so there were a lot. It was there's hard a lot. There's a lot. Um, so we try to prioritize a, a number of things. For starters, we are emphasizing emerging brands. And um, we don't put a number on that. But when I say emerging, I typically mean like less than 250 locations, um, not a major chain that's really made it. 
Um, and not also an independent that only has like two, but one that is scaling, that does have some momentum and has not yet um, reached a point of saturation. So that's kind of what we're, why we chose, um, you know, I guess it's our first filter for how we cho- choose these brands. And then we go for geographic diversity. We're looking for brands all over the country. We're looking for some differences among the brands themselves. We have two slider concepts on the list this year, um, Savvy Sliders and Small yeah. Sliders. Um we have some of these really better burger brands like a hop dotty. Um, and, uh, and then, but then we have also, um, you know, some more straight down the middle brands too. So, so those are our filters. And then um, as a team, we kind of pick uh, who belongs on this list. And, and again, sort of that momentum factor is these are brands that have uh, exciting products, exciting story to tell, but also growth momentum. And, and then we put it to the audience to say, well, which of these are you most interested in? Um, this is Holly's baby. Holly was the one who kind of came up with this for us, gosh, in 2022. It's almost mm-hmm. two years on now. And, um, and I think it was born out of this fact that in our position in media, food service media, I mean, we see all of these brands. Um, we have a very unique position watching all of these brands come up and, and we genuinely want to know which of them are legit in the eyes of the industry because we can eat there. Uh, we can talk to their leaders. Um, but for those restaurant leaders who count these brands as peers and are watching them and wanting to emulate them, you know, that's what we really want to know. This is not a, a, a selfish ploy for clicks and comments. This is genuinely, we want to know who who do you think is the most exciting in the industry? Um, and so that's what we've done. And we've done, is this our sixth showdown now, Holly? Seventh. Seventh showdown. So we've done anything from tacos to breakfast to chicken. Now it's time for burgers. Um, so Instagram and LinkedIn, if you go hit us up there, you'll find our posts on the showdown. Um, comment on your favorites. We're tallying the votes. Lots and lots and lots of votes already on the Instagram posts, especially. Um you have an opportunity to really um, give some attention uh, to your preferred burger brand. Yeah. And so some of our previous winners, what were we going to say, Brett? I was going to say, though, it's not a selfish ploy for clicks and comments. Click and comment, though. (laughs) (laughs) We still like those. (laughs) Yeah. So some of our previous winners, our pizza showdown was Via 313. Our chicken showdown was Starbird Chicken. Our tacos were Condado Tacos. So these are all small brands that are growing, that have momentum, Um, And so those are just some examples of what we kind of look for. Um, But, you know, we are all about emerging brands. So, Sam, why don't you tell us about breakout brands? Oh, thanks, Holly, for that segue. (laughs) Of course, I'd I'd happily do that. So, yeah, our our other big report that we just introduced, because, you know, hey, uh, in the doldrums of January and February, as we were talking about, we should have some exciting stuff. So we went from America's Favorite Chains to the Burger Showdown to uh, Breakout Brands. Um, all of which you should go check out at nrn.com. Um, our breakout brands, this is uh, our way of saying, okay, you know, you know, if the, if the showdown is highlighting brands with that momentum, breakout brands is like the, the uh, you know, sort of tier one. It's, it's the step right before you get into consideration for something like a showdown because these are brands with like three to five locations. Certainly less than 10 is what we, uh, is kind of our, 
um, our parameter there. And, and these are really exciting concepts that we think could become bigger. Um, but right now are primarily local and regional concepts. And so if you look at a brand like Taco Tarian, um, primarily just in the Las Vegas area right now, I believe they have five locations. They've expanded to, I think it's San Diego. Um, but when you look at this brand, they have, uh, it's plant-based Mexican fast casual. Um, I have not had the honor of eating there yet, but by and large, we see just raves about the quality of the food occupies multiple trend, uh, lanes in that it's plant-based and it's Mexican and it's fast casual. Um, I believe vice president Kamala Harris is a big fan as are um, some other celebrities. So they've kind of got this marketing sort of shine on them, but, but, you know, still not necessarily out to that next stage of, okay, they're going to be everywhere soon. That's why we call it breakout brands. Cause legitimately these are brands that are just now breaking out. Um, and so we have a list of eight concepts on the list this year, uh, full service and fast casual or uh, full service and limited service, mostly fast casual. Uh, and, and again, all of them occupy a very unique, um, a very unique category in the industry. Cause we didn't want to just say, well, it's a three unit burger and fries concept. We genuinely want to find out like, what are some of these concepts that are doing very creative things with their menu, um, have the potential to become the next call it like Kava, right? Where when Kava was a thing originally, when they only had five locations about 10 years ago, it was like Mediterranean fast casual. Interesting. Let's see what happens with that. And now they're everywhere, right? They're a huge success. Similarly, we want to find kind of that next big thing. So that's what the breakout brands is all about. And you can get those over at NRN.com. And well, I will list actually... all the links below so you can be sure to just click, click, click through everything. Thanks, Holly. When one of them actually is a burger and fries chain, but it is a uh, vegan burger and fries chain and uh, has as an investor and spokesman Kevin Hart. That's Hart House, which I know top of mind because I wrote that story. So. And and it's it's a quick read. You'll enjoy it. I would certainly not bet against Kevin Hart um, when it comes to uh, potential, right? I mean, a brand backed by one of the biggest celebrities in Hollywood and, and comedians, um, you know, has a great opportunity to go places. So, like, of course, that's a part of it. You know, there are lots of factors we weigh. But uh, similarly, still, again, haven't been to Hart House yet, but um, everything I hear has been overwhelmingly positive about their menu. Um, this is not just a, you know, celebrity thinks he can be a restaurateur and gets into the business. He, you know, by all accounts, like he's very invested in the success of this brand and they have incredible leadership and incredible resources put up, put against it. So again, yeah, those are, that's how we look for these brands. We, we genuinely are placing bets for some of these ideas that could become big. We're just still watching to see what happens with them. Well, and I feel like Heart House is what Big Chicken first started as. And I feel like we're going to see a similar trajectory. Big Chicken is making it. And I think that Heart House is going to have the same same pathway for success. Um, so definitely I'll provide you guys the links. Be sure to check out Heart House because Brett is a star and wants you to read it. Um, and <laughs> nothing about Kevin Hart. It's all about Brett. Um, so <laughs> I'm going to throw it over uh, to your interview, Sam, with Robert Byrne of Technomic to talk about America's favorite chains. Super informative, super good. If you're part of the video portion, you can see a lot of slides that they had. Um, so I recommend seeing it on the video um, to really get a sense of what Robert's talking about. Um, but I'm going to thank you guys for joining me. Uh, I am Sam Okus, Editor-in-Chief of Nation's Restaurant News. I am joined by Robert Byrne, the Director of I'm going to get this right. Industry and Consumer Insights for Technomic. Yeah. Did I get it? Bullseye. Bullseye. Great. Thank you. 
Robert, a pleasure as always to join you to uh, talk about data that Technomic has uh, kindly provided to us to create a report out of. We previously spoke on our off-premises report in the fall. Mm -hmm. And today, very excited to be here and to talk about America's favorite chains, which just published in NRN's January issue and is now available at NRN.com. Before we start talking, just a reminder to everybody that Robert, I'm going to do this because he's on that side of me, at least in my (laughs) video, is an incredible resource and is here to answer your questions. So as you have questions, pop them into the comments here and we will get to those questions as we chat. (sighs) Okay, that's my intro. Robert, let's start this thing. Yeah, that's the housekeeping notes. Okay, so I I think where we got to start is um, this data is incredible and lots to learn from this data. We'll get into that. But let's just start by talking about what the data actually represents. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at the numbers, um, and uh, Holly, I'm going to have you go ahead and pop up the top 10, the first slide there, uh, top 10 chains, America's favorite chains. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a cluttered situation here, but this is what you'll see in print. Um, What do these numbers represent, Robert? What were you studying? Yeah, absolutely. So this is this data comes from a syndicated program where we have a survey that is in the field year round, capturing consumer attitudes, consumer usage of, of all of these different restaurant chains. Of course, it is limited to restaurant chains. Um, so that's important, right? As a, a point of distinction, the largest chains right now, we're at about 160 total. But what the numbers represent are um, in the course of the survey, we take a respondent. So Sam comes into my survey and we ask him, which of these brands do you know? How often do you go? Oh, of those that you you are familiar with, right? How do you have a recent occasion that we can talk to you about specifically? And from that point forward in the survey, you then, Sam, are profiling or evaluating in great detail your most recent occasion at one of these chains. So... You know, if you think about your experience, um, we want to capture not just the, the you know, who you went with, why you went, when you went, what was behind that decision, all the great W questions, but those, those guest experience measures. And these numbers really are critical to um, anybody who wants to look at a restaurant operator and understand how they're performing through the guest lens relative to competitors. So we aggregate a bunch of these scores. There's, you know, questions about food and beverage, questions about value, convenience, service and hospitality, unit uh, ambiance. And we, we, we create a roll-up score that overall, the far left bar on any of these specific brands, um, and, and simply just sort them, ordinarily rank them based on how powerful or strong these scores are. And what's interesting, you can immediately see this in, in this particular chart in a way that you necessarily can't when you're just looking at the numbers on a table as, as I am right here. There are brands that have very specific strengths that really push them into that top 10. Um, yeah. And then there are some that just have a, a nice, healthy balance of these measures. Um, but, you know, for example, I look over there at, at the far right, we see Smoothie King making it into the top 10. I know we're going to get to them. And we see that this this idea of convenience and takeout, that sort of uh, uh, turquoise bar, aqua, whatever the color you think Mm -hmm. that is, depending on how colorblind you may be, um, (laughs) that's one of those brand strengths for that brand. And it makes a a lot of anecdotal sense when you think about it. But you can see that that is one of the driving features that's pushing this brand up and that overall rating up um, to to bring them into our our top 10, our vaunted top 10. We're uh, 
Roy's excited because, you know, you do get some fun surprises. Absolutely. And and we're going to break down those surprises because mm-hmm. it's such fascinating data. And I, I guess I'll start at the top here. You've got five Darden brands mm-hmm. in the top 10, which is <laughs> amazing. And, and we'll get to that in a second. Also five steakhouses mm-hmm. uh, that are in this top 10. Uh, three, let's call it beverage snack in Dutch bros and the two smoothie chains we have on this list, mm-hmm. all kinds of directions I can go here, but let's just start broadly your, your takeaway. When you look at these numbers, the top 10, what's your, what's your first kind of big picture takeaway? So for me, the, the, the impact of, uh, a restaurant experience on premise, off premise, what have you is all determined and almost dictated in some senses by the occasion Occasions determine where you're going, often how much you're willing to spend, all of that good stuff. And when you look at the sort of (laughs) opposite ends of that, that occasion continuum that are represented right here, they're polar opposites. They really are in many ways because you have steak, you have the special occasion, the high spend where, you know, even if the food was okay, the experience was probably awesome because you were with, you know, your best friend or your, your, uh, your spouse, your significant other, you know, a group of people where you're celebrating something or, or really just into it. And those, those places are built to service that occasion in a way that, you know, sort of everyday usage places just can't do. On the exact opposite end of the spectrum, you have a place that is like a Dutch Bros, so much a daily usage brand um, that that there is this affinity that comes from frequency. They're one of the most frequently used brands among those who who are familiar with that brand or know that brand, um, rivaling Starbucks, McDonald's, which are the highest usage on a frequency basis, right? But then when you get over to smoothies and and something that is the opposite of a special occasion meal, it's a snack. It's frequently an impulse occasion um, or or a quick decision. Sometimes it's meal replacement. But, man, it's always satisfying. I could go for a smoothie yeah. right now just talking about it, right? There's <laughs> there's something to the, the degree of satisfaction that you get from something as simple as a smoothie. So it's it's the the, you know, the, the height of this elevated occasion on one end and the simplicity of a pick-me-up beverage or, uh, you know, a, a cool, uh, sweet, you know, really satisfying filling beverage on the other side that, that really um, leaves a lot of space in between. But you can see that the ends of that, that continuum are really what stick out here. Hopefully that makes yeah. some sense. But is it a surprise yeah. to me? I don't know that it is a surprise. I, I cheated because I look at this data all day, every day, but you know how that goes. <laughs> That's why we got you here. Well, <laughs> I love what you say about the occasion part. And to me, there's sort of a de- dependability factor too, right? And and the, that dependability might be in, I depend upon you to provide a memorable experience for my anniversary, for my yep. birthday, for the set celebration uh, on the high end. That dependability can also be, I depend upon you for my morning commute smoothie that's going to help me achieve my lifestyle objectives, which could be yep. getting healthier or whatever. And so that, that was my my kind of takeaway from all this too. Um, let, let's park it with Darden. <laughs> what's, yeah. what's the secret sauce at Darden? Why do you think, I mean, because Darden has had some momentum lately if, mm-hmm. if you look at sales and just general business momentum. But I, I, I mean, five in the top 10 still kind of blows me away. Can you help me understand why we think that is the case? I, I don't think it's terrifically complicated, um, and I think that's the secret sauce. Mm. 
if you think about these Darden brands, um, I believe that, you know, they all ran some sort of a pilot rewards program in around 2019 or so, or at some point historically. Don't, they're not doing it today. They're not doing a rewards mm-hmm. program. They're not doing a loyalty program. You can gift card and you can do all that wonderful stuff, right? If you were to go to, just to use a Darden brand as an example, if you were to go to the Olive Garden website and look on their FAQ page, you would see that their response to why don't you have a loyalty program is, you know what? We think it's more important that every single guest that walks in the door gets treated to, you know, a, a, a very well-deserved high value experience, um, w- w- you know, with quality and everything that goes along with it. So think about all the attention and all the energy that goes into that and the sort of disparity that you can create among your guests by, and believe me, consumers freaking love rewards programs. I'm not right. saying don't do that, but do I think that that is a big part of their success? Absolutely, because that is the essence of every single guest that walks in that door or orders online or calls us up gets treated in exactly the same way. You have no preferential treatment. And as long as you're focused on that, which I believe that they all are to a very high degree, um, you you come out looking good to everybody. And I think that's a big part of that. Because remember, these are top box scores. What is that? That's the percent of consumers that gave them the highest possible rating for that measure. Mm -hmm. So what are they doing? They're impressing the largest number of people to the highest degree. So, you know, you'll have brands that have their super fans, um, you know, Starbucks and McDonald's, these brands do extremely well with their rewards programs and whatnot. But I would argue that, you know, in some cases that is a, a necessity. Whereas in the case of Darden, they're just treating everybody as if, um, you know, they're, they're, they're welcome to everything that you can possibly imagine this occasion should afford you. Right. There's another factor here that I'm curious about your opinion on, which is, you know, especially when you look at this top 10, Mm -hmm. I don't see national brands. Some of them soon to be. I mean, I think Dutch Bros is getting there, Tropical Mm -hmm. Smoothie Cafes, maybe there arguably. But what I see is a lot of more mid-market brands, you know, Mm -hmm. some regional brands, even the Darden. You know, I mean, if you think about Seasons 52, Capital Girl, Ruth's Chris, they're not pervasive they're not everywhere is that affecting it do you think because because starbucks and and we'll see and we go as we go through more results right there's not a lot of big national chains that show up in these lists and i just wonder like why that might be a factor well i'm gonna um i'm not a restaurant operator i don't even play one on tv right but i'm going to guess that the larger your system gets um the 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 greater the opportunities for friction within that system that create a subpar or maybe just less than excellent guest experience sort of uniformly across the board. Um, Brands also become a victim of their ubiquity. I I love McDonald's. And I don't know if anybody's seen any of the other social posts that I've done recently, but, you know, I love McDonald's. There was a point in my life where they were absolutely my favorite brand. And I I still love them. Um, And, and, you know, that's just, I, I think that everybody does to some degree as well. Yeah. But are they outstanding? Not really. Do I love them? Do I go and want their French fries right now? Yes, I absolutely do. Uh, but, you know, is it going to be outstanding? Is Am I going to walk out of there and say, excellent, excellent, excellent? Probably not because the usage becomes a little bit routine um, and because the experience gets a little bit diluted as well due to that size, due to whatever their focus is. If it's convenience, purely based on convenience or price, 
something gets sacrificed with with that sort of a quest. And right. so sometimes that something is just, you know, general guest satisfaction. That's a great point. Yeah, I, I took my five-year-old son to McDonald's yesterday, in fact, because he was requesting a happy meal. Thought, great, and, uh, great experience. And it was very fine. Yeah. Uh, and if, but if my five-year-old son had said, Daddy, where do you want to go? <laughs> and that's no offense to McDonald's, which I have no. a ton of respect for, but yeah. there's a Shake Shack not far by. I might have said, let's do Shake Shack. But he doesn't get a happy meal. Shake Shack, so, you know, yeah. and, and, and for me, I've got a number of different locals. People talk about small Cheval as, you know, one of the oh, burger yeah. places nationally oh, yeah. even to go to. It's not that far. I could do yeah. that. But, you know, McDonald's is a lot more convenient and, and certainly more affordable, um, but has been a part of my life for my entire life. And, and I'm not a kid. So it's, you know, um, it's it's it really is kind of the standard. Uh, for for heavy usage, heavy frequency, and 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 reliability, dependability, yeah. mm-hmm. absolutely, they have all that stuff. But do they have the thing that sets this to 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 my mind when I think about those Darden brands? To kind of go back to steak and those Darden brands too, um, you know, they're not out there having to do th- having to pushing the needle with things like a grimace shake to try to generate excitement, to try to generate traffic. They are just being who they are. They're staying in that lane. Um, they're not out there sourcing the mo- you know sexiest, newest, hottest global flavors or whatever it is. Um, and the Grimace Shake it was was a phenomenal success, and I'm super excited that brands such as McDonald's can still continue to have that sort of success. Yeah. But if I'm not doing that and I'm focused on the fundamentals, then you know I this this is where the results are gonna um, gonna favor me. For sure. Yeah. All right. So we're going to move on. We've got lots of data to get through here. Um, Holly, I'll go ahead and have you. There we go. We're going to break this down first by uh, service category. So, of course, here we have fast, casual, casual dining, quick service and mid scale. Uh, When I look at this, uh, you know, some more surprises. I mean, jump off the page, you know, quick service. You see a lot of that kind of still return to a sort of a treat snack, uh, you know, Kind of play uh, fast casual sandwiches apparently dominate fast casual. Um, But break this down for me, Robert, if you will, some of the learnings you get from these service categories. Well, yeah, absolutely. Fast casual um, is is primarily known through the, I would argue, the two largest fast casual brands and probably best known Panera and Chipotle. Um, And and what's interesting about this is if you look at these brands, um, Sweetgreen maybe does this to some degree, but these brands don't necessarily sit there and, and try to dictate that conversation about um, the, the transparency of the sourcing of their ingredients or the quality of their ingredients. They're just serving you delicious food that's very simple in a straightforward way. That is the fast, casual way. You sort of eliminate all the noise and just focus and stay in that pretty specific lane. I think these brands are all doing that. But when you get down to this idea of, of the, the deli style offering, you know, the, the Jersey Mike's, the Jason's Deli, the McAllister's, the sandwiches just, you know, bowls are, are certainly a thing right now, but there's no time at now we're in the future where they will be replaced by or they will replace sandwiches as that go to, as that reliable and as that satisfying. 
that just is there, there's, uh, you know, so much there for consumers. Now, I love seeing that, that there's a, a newer brand here, Sweetgreen, that enters into this equation. Um, and, you know, we can definitely argue that that's going to be driven by your, your millennial guest more than any other guest specifically. And I know right. we can talk about right that a little bit yeah. if you want. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but but that also is your core fast casual guest. That's your you know millennials. They they're the ones who built the whole sub segment of fast casual the whole way through. So there's a little bit of that sort of foodiness that goes into it because it's still a sandwich. But you know if it's freshly sliced meat at Jersey Mike's, um, and for for the very young set of it's Danny DeVito who's the the mouthpiece for Jersey Mike's. That's right. Not only does it not hurt, it's it's huge. It's really funny to think that this guy who's you know probably close to eighty, just has so much appeal with that younger set. But but the the deli has a a very classic and and the word I like to use is wholesome sort of appeal to it. So that that's kind of what I see with fast casual. There's that that health component that that factors in there. For quick service, it's snacks. It's snacks. It's snacks. It's more snacks, and it's treats that goes along with it. Now Chick Fil A is always going to be tops anywhere because of the service, the fundamentals. You go to the drive-through at Chick Fil A, and it is just as polite, kind, and 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 seemingly quick and enjoyable as it would be if you went in and and ordered at, you know at uh, uh, with a, a frontline associate. Um, so no question about that. We've already discussed smoothie uh, and, and Dutch Bros to a degree, but Cold Stone, I mean, treats are super exciting and satisfying. So it's not really um, a high frequency uh, uh, type of place. But again, it's it's where millennials and younger guests are are really you know excited. Actually, there's no age limit to enjoying a frozen treat, is sure. there? So, yeah. So um, and the experience so, of it too, right? Coldstone yeah. really kind of has that experiential factor. Uh, well, think about this too. To they're, they're they're limiting the margin of error in terms of the food preparation. What it can, I mean, you know, um, I got my food home and it was too cold. Well, it was ice cream. You know what I mean? Or or um, you know, it wasn't made fresh enough. I you know I don't know quite know that that's possible given right, the, the service right. model that they have at a place like that, right? So so all yeah. that variability kind of goes out the window. For casual, um, you know, for casual, there's a lot of experiential stuff going on here. Think about it. Seasons where you're getting the seasonal menu. Bahama Breeze, I don't know. Have you ever been to a Bahama Breeze? Uh, Years and years and years ago, yeah. So vibey, dripping with vibe. It's oh yes, it's. I mean, that's like what Jimmy Buffett was really envisioning, in my opinion, as a Bahama Breeze. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, And then you know, we've talked about steak and 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 what that means. Cooper's Hawk has a, a, a fabulous angle in that they, um, you know, they're, they're really their rewards or loyalty club is more of a wine club than, than a, uh, uh, than a a rewards, traditional rewards club. So there's that experiential component that, that sneaks through there when we talk about casual mid scale. um, We know at Technomic that we believe breakfast and brunch are, are, they're huge and they're just only going to get bigger. And what you're seeing happen at mid scale is you're seeing a lot more of these players um, add adult beverages to the menu. And that's just one of those larger shifts that you're seeing toward the earlier day part. When we look at sort of when these younger consumers are engaged with adult beverages, more and more, it's it's that brunch. So, you know, you have a first watch that sort of said we're, we're listening to guests and they're telling us that they want some bar options, even though we're not necessarily a bar forward concept. I think that's something that I read coming out of them. It, it pays off. It pays off. They had a powerful non-alc beverage program to begin with. They're only open in the morning and early afternoon. Now, what does that mean from a, a service supply chain standpoint? That means you're getting the best of the best because those 
those uh, uh, employees, that labor pool knows that they're eating dinner with their family every single night of the week. They're never going to have to work late at the restaurant, you know, in this capacity where you might get it some other places. Cracker Barrel is a, a perennial favorite. And what I thought was particularly interesting was Cracker Barrel's powerful performance with Gen Z. Yeah, I was really impressed by that. But, you know, it I think it says a lot about how far that brand has come. If we think about that, that that legacy impression that people of a certain age might have about Cracker Barrel. Right. And then you see this this, uh, you know, very multicultural young Gen Z group em embracing what Cracker Barrel is today. I just think there's a that, that's a fabulous uh, thing to see because that's recognition for a lot of the efforts that that brand made. But ultimately, yeah. I think this all boils down to breakfast. And when you can get breakfast any time of day, that, that's a winner for me. Um, mm -hmm. No question about it. So, you know, is there, um, is there a future for the mid-scale segment? A lot of people just even a few short years ago might have questioned that. I think it's a super powerful. I mean, we're even talking about breakfast casual as a potential segment here. So I think there's a super powerful potential uh, within that group of operators. Um, yeah. That's probably more than you wanted to know. <laughs> I love it. And, 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 and I segueing off of that, I mean, to call out a few brands here, I mean, well, for starters, you might remember a few months ago when you and I first started looking at this mm -hmm. data together, I said, huh, why isn't Chick-fil-A all over the place? You know, I mm -hmm. just assume when I look at data like this, Chick-fil-A is going to be all over the place. Yeah. You know, they do show up here and, and we'll see as we break it down by menu category, they do show up. But as you mentioned, more, you know, mid-market kind of brands. But to call out two, one we've talked about already, Dutch Bros, but then First Watch. I mean, Dutch Bros and First Watch, my goodness, like these two brands are so on fire right now. And I just feel like this is kind of validation that it's not just sales. It's not just the off-premises report. You might, might remember Dutch Bros was all over that one. But sure enough, they're also just showing up on the customer favorite list and tops in their categories, which I think yeah. speaks volumes. <laughs> well, the service, it comes back to that service. You know, we can talk about the, about the convenience level of, of, of Dutch Bros. And we can talk about First Watch just being sort of morning centric and everything. But that level of service never wavers. And, yeah. you know, say what you will about increased, you know, digital engagement or tech engagement with restaurants, um, increased need for convenience, even the drive through experience at a Dutch Bros, even the delivery experience from a first watch. These are, you know, there still are touch points there. And these are brands that are maximizing those touch points in ways that um, really should be considered best in class. Yeah. 100%. All right. So as mentioned, we have uh, this data by menu category. Holly, mm -hmm. if we can move along to that slide. All right. So this one to me was where I think it contained the fewest surprises. Right. But maybe you tell me if I'm wrong here. What do you read from the, the data here? No, I, I don't think there are, are too many, you know, flat out surprises because you're starting to get a little bit into the, the, the um, singularity of each of these particular types of operators. But, you know, I, I think that one of the things that did take me by surprise was seeing, if we look at that Mexican category, seeing a full service operator, um, Chewy's, uh, who lifelong fan of Chewy's. I, the first time I went to a Chewy's, I think they maybe had two locations, both in the Austin, Texas area. Um, and, and since then have just been enamored with the brand for, for sure. Um, mm -hmm. But we know that Mexican and fast casual are two things that travel really well together. So to yeah. see the strength of a full service operator that is, um, you know, really, I think taking a lot of the the fun that that should come with the occasion and and amping it up and and, and you know the kitsch value and all that stuff um, generates an, an appeal there for Mexicans. So that to me was actually impressive. Was was this idea that 
they they um, are every bit as competitive with their guests as as those uh, fast casuals, you know, like a like a Torchies, like a Moe's. So well, by the way, no the- no Chipotle. Like, did that surprise you? I mean, maybe it goes back to what we said about the yeah. national brands, but like, it, it's still it kind does. of surprising. Yeah, well, and you know, Chipotle has had some very high-profile stumbles over the years too. Let's not forget, you know, that they right. have, had, and they've done a miraculous job of of recovering from each of those unfortunate incidents. There's no question about it. With some food safety or or, or um, you know, some illness-related things that that we know about historically. So I think maybe there, believe me, there are Chipotle fans that will, you know, do Chipotle for lunch more than one day a week. Uh, there's no question about that. And that pool is, uh, it's very loyal. And I wouldn't necessarily suggest that that pool is shrinking. However, I wonder if it's growing given the very aggressive price action that that brand has taken over the past couple of years. Um, and I don't think they've, they've uh, shied away from that. And I believe that publicly they've said, yeah, we may have lost some of those guests along the way that are on the margins, but you know, the power of our core is, 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 is such that it hasn't really negatively impacted them. Well, that's a decision they made. And I think that you know, maybe that's, as I said about Darden, everybody's equal, everybody's the same. You know, Nobody's getting a better deal than somebody else because we're not building FOMO. You know what I mean? We're 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 just giving you an excellent experience across the board. Maybe there's a little of that going on. I also really thought it was interesting to see Papa Murphy's up here uh, atop yeah. these pizza players. Right? We know Papa yeah. Murphy's has very strong equity with their guests, but it's mm-hmm. it's such a unique concept that to see it outperforming a Marcos or a Cece's, where the food is fully prepared for you, as opposed to the take and bake model, right? Mm-hmm. But that's I think that they're going to win because of the freshness. You know, you can see the ingredients before you bake them yourself. So, so those are the types of things that I see in here that, that are interesting to me. Um, the other one you might call out would be Jollibee. Um, in the chicken category. I, yeah, I haven't been yeah. to enough Jollibees to really know their menu well enough to say that it belongs well, there, but hey. That, that's, that's where Technomic puts them. Um, we know they do a healthy burger business as well, right? right. But that is, that's where, where Technomic puts them. And I think it has to do with sort of what the primary foot forward is. Um, sort of how, you know, Del Taco serves burgers, but we still consider them a Mexican concept, um, sort of sure. at their core. But, you know, that Jollibee name being there, I mean, this, is, this is fabulous. You know, again, it speaks to this, this interest that consumers have and, and appreciation that consumers have for that authenticity of a brand that is imported. Um, that is coming from, uh, you know, another, not just some region in the States where, you know, like an in and out if they go further east, whoa, it's exotic. This, for real, it's an international concept coming out of the Philippines. And so I think right. that, that beyond their core, they're starting to grow some of that base with, uh, you know, with uh, uh, folks who maybe wouldn't otherwise be familiar with the brand if they sort of stuck where they had been from a, uh, from a geographic standpoint. Um, but, but, you know, it, it goes to show you that there, there's interest and there's appreciation for what they're bringing to the table, you know, and I'm never surprised to see Raising Cane's. This is, you know, yeah. we just did a, just did a Gen Alpha study, um, at, as part oh, of our supplier, uh, uh, membership program at Technomic and Cane's just, it's one of those brands that comes up and, uh, you, you've probably seen this too, when it's not a trip to McDonald's, it's probably a trip to someplace like Cane's. The ultimate in the adultification of the kids' menu. It's good yeah, stuff. Chicken fingers. You cannot beat chicken Can't fingers. And it's the wrong. simplicity of the menu too, right? I mean, you only I have a handful true. of options. Yeah. So it makes yep. a lot and of the, sense. Those things are exactly why we're seeing that brand here. Um, you yeah. Know, again, 
gone are the days of, whoa, we got the veto vote, all that. No, consumers come to you because that thing that they know you do really well. And if you're trying to do a lot of things really well, again, the margin of error starts to, you know, sort of increase along with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And going back to the to the Papa Murphy's example, I mean, I, I've seen them pop up in lists like this for years and it always mm-hmm. surprises me, but once upon a time, and then, you know, as an East coaster where Papa Murphy's does not have as much of a footprint, uh, my experience with them was limited, but sure enough, when there's a Papa Murphy's around the ability to ensure that our pizza is going to be hot <laughs> and not lose the heat in the 15 minute drive home. Yep. It's often a game changer for, for our family. So, and so there's that experiential component that I really do think. And, and, and again, going back to raising canes, if I've got a car full of hungry kids and McDonald's isn't going to cut it and I'm not near a Chick-fil-A, but I've got a raising canes and I don't have to read the menu to my kids. And I can just say, <laughs> how many chicken fingers do you want? Hold up fingers. That's, <laughs> That's right. All so, you got to no. do. Uh, all good feedback. All right. So moving on to our last uh, set of data here, we're going to mm-hmm. break it down now by generation. And here's where we've kind of hinted on this. We only, we're only going to presenting here, Gen Z and millennials. Um, but I just, I'm so fascinated by this and you might be able to bring in some of that Gen Alpha talk too, Robert, because I think it's so funny how different these two generations are. I identify as older millennial and I, mm-hmm. and I see like Gen Z to me doesn't seem I don't know, like not so much younger, but like when I look at this and, you know, sweet green is number four on yeah. millennial limited service and it does not appear on the Gen Z list. And because I, you mentioned this before, sweet green is such a quintessential millennial brand. So let's break down these generations and what they like <laughs> and, and why all of this even matters. What do you think about this? Well, it, it matters when you think about lifetime value of your potential guests. There's no question about that. And so, you know, the question becomes, do, does Gen Z age into Sweetgreen as sort of their life stage begins to match that of where millennials are today? That's really the question. Yeah. Can Sweetgreen make sure that their messaging resonates with Gen Z. But here's the thing that I consistently come back to when I talk about the difference between these generations, because, you know, at first blush, it's really easy to think millennials, Gen Z, well, it's, you know, probably going to be some similarities. Uh-uh. So a large part of that comes from this sort of generational hop that you see with each generation. So who are the parents of millennials? Hint, it's not Gen X. Boomers. Who are the parents of Gen Z? Hint, it's not millennials, right? It's (laughs) it's sex. So when you think about what you sort of anecdotally know to be true about those generations, think about how that would skip and leapfrog um, in terms of attitudes, in terms Mm -hmm. of um, maybe a more pragmatic approach that Gen Z might have relative to millennials. If I were to be so bold, I would say boomers are the original, you know, capital C consumer generation, that idea of consumption at that level for a large, um, you know, very affluent, currently very affluent, but, you know, a very upwardly mobile generation. And that sort of spills over into to the millennial generation where consumption is, I mean, it's fun. It's super fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and is, is just part of that daily life. Now you skip to Gen X And, you know, I remember coming out of school into a recession the first time around and, you know, Iraq war and all these other things that I thought the world was crumbling. And why bother? You know, it just suited my Gen X attitude so well. He's like, who cares? What's the point? (laughs) I've since grown from then. But but 
that sort of I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here really to, to try to make the best of this and not to make a show of this, I think is a big part of what skips over to Gen Z. And so mm-hmm. when you look at what they're, what they're doing here, they're, they're, they're going to places for treats. A, a lot of that has to do with what they're doing with their friends. Cause this is that friend activity, um, you know, and it's not dinner with friends. It's the snack with friends, this Gen Alpha right. thing that you mentioned, right? Gen Alpha will go as a group to a place and, you know, maybe one or two people will buy food and everybody eats it, mm. you know, and, uh, you know, or they won't have any food at all. They'll go to a place where food's offered, but only everybody will have a drink. So it's, it's beverages. Um, it's, it's this idea that everything is shared. There's sort of a, you know, <laughs> communal pool of food. My daughter, who uh, is an alpha told me about going to a place where, you know, she got her food and she hadn't even sat down and she already had people grabbing food off of her tray as she was working her way to sit down. It just wow. is, you know, kind of, kind of that, that uh, behavior. Um, yeah. and, and I think so, you know, there's a lot of, uh, of that that goes on when we talk about these limited service players, um, the snacks, the, the craveability, you know, they haven't reached that age where concerns about their health are as much of an issue as maybe they will be five, 10 years right. from now. Yep. When I look at full service, you look at that brand for millennials, that, that millennial group, that's your experiential generation. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense to me that you're going to see, you know, up, up top there, you're going to see uh, some steak, right? Brass tap with the, the uh, you know, the, the brew pub style and, and, and all of the beer options and whatnot. That that's, makes perfect sense to me. Bahama Breeze, same thing we talked about, the, just the beautiful vibe that they have going in those places. Mm-hmm. Um, so Cooper's Hawk with the wine. We know millennials have a, an affinity for wine. Again, not all millennials, but we see the skew is, is, is pretty good there for, for wine specifically. And over on Gen Z, you have some more value conscious brands, a Cheddar's, a Chili's, where value is definitely going to play more of a role. And, um, you know, the atmosphere is going to be, uh, it's there. It's just going to be a little livelier. It's going to be a little more maybe high energy or a little more um, uh, less formal, so to speak. So, so those yeah. are the things that I see here when I look at the full service versus the limited service. And again, that Cracker Barrel piece, there's something about that authenticity. I know that as a Gen Xer, all I could think about was like, why wasn't I born 20 years earlier or 40 years earlier or whatever it is? You know, Uh I think about that movie Midnight in Paris where everybody wants to keep going further back in time and further back in time. And Uh I think that that nostalgia is there for Gen Z in a way that maybe it necessarily wasn't for, for millennials. So Whole mouthful, yeah. but I, I, I mean, I could keep going. You know that. Well, fascinating implications too to think about. I mean, a Gen Z, oldest Gen Z today, mid twenties. So I'd say upper twenties. Yeah, we could we could be upper twenties now for the, for the oldest. Okay, Gen Z. Mm-hmm. still coming into discretionary income, right? I mean, still arguably on the value train, right? So like yep. that that makes sense. Millennials perhaps entering a new sort of mature phase of their lives where they perhaps have more uh, disposable income. They have kids that they you know want to treat to experience. Oh, yeah. But playing this out too, I you know to your point about like who the parents are, yeah, my kids being seven and five, prob- I guess alpha, um, you know, my generation, the older gener- older millennials, really the generation of Chipotle and Panera. The to your point earlier, is sort of the original mm-hmm. fast casual generation. How does that play out to Gen Alpha? I wonder, and that's that's maybe data for another day, of course. But I do wonder about that. I I think that, um, you know, this, there, there are going to be more and more brands that are going to lean further into that one specific thing, which I love, because if you can, Mm. if you can deliver on your, if you can choose and create your identity rather than let, letting consumers choose it for you and name it for you, 
if you can hang that shingle um, and, and just be very blunt and transparent about it, um, I think that these younger consumers are going to appreciate it. One of the, the qualitative pieces that came out of that study was, I'm going to you because I know you're good at this. That's specifically why I'm headed to your place, right? I don't, I don't want to come in saying, what's, why am I here? What's, what do I have? What do they have that's good? What are they? I'm going here because it says out front, best chicken in town. It says best fries, you know what I mean? And so there's going to be that um, direct connection that those younger consumers are going to make. I, I believe that that's going to be something that comes out of it. So that to sort of don't confuse me with mixed messages. Although I will say that Gen Z and, and Gen Alpha also have a very absurdist sense of humor that might allow for some of that from a marketing perspective. Um, but, uh, but you know, they, they, they want to know that you are doing this and you're doing it very well. So beyond just cuisine and food, you can think about some uh, emerging restaurant concepts that are doing that maybe philosophically in a different way. Uh, yeah. Greenline is, a, I think, a really interesting example of a, a, an emerging brand that is taking uh, the, the, the sort of off-premise only to an extreme. They have drive-through. I think they have some carry-out and whatnot. I don't think they have a single seat in that handful of units that they have uh, down in Florida just thus far. Mm -hmm. But they're, they're taking the, the convenience that we all associate with legacy QSR and the drive-through window and all that um, and, and, and order ahead and things that go along with that. And instead, um, moving more toward, uh, you know, bowls, healthier items, healthier ingredients, lighter fare and whatnot. Yeah. Is that going to take off out of the gate with the youngest consumers? Again, if they've got some sweet treats to go along with it or has got some shareables or some craveable items. Yes. If it's purely based on health, I think you're, you're starting with your millennials. And when Gen Z starts to come into that, like, because they are interested in health, but think about what that moving target looks like for Gen Z. For some, it's like, give me all the protein you got, you know, right. don't worry about the other stuff or, you know, um, I, I, my, my diet is based on this, that, and the other, not, you know, this particular thing that right. uh, maybe historically or traditionally has been considered healthy or light or whatever it is. But that light idea extends to portion size as well. So mm -hmm. maybe you're interested in a new concept. Well, why don't you take those massive portion sizes that people are looking at and say, the value is you pay less, you get less, but isn't that really ultimately what you're after? You don't need all this massive amounts of food, you know, the, right. the whole supersize me thing. Although I did hear that McDonald's may be bringing back the supersize as a, as a sort of renewed attempt at, at, at uh, improving the value proposition overall. Um, anyway. Yeah, I, I can't tell you how many times in this conversation, though, I've wanted to say, huh, everything's cyclical, everything's <laughs> cyclical, right? I mean, it feels like everything kind of comes back around, doesn't it? Yeah, well, it's it's a part of nostalgia, right? You know, it just, yeah. it, it does. I remember seeing a, a study where somebody was pointing out that the very first um, automat where food was in, in cubbies or whatnot, it yep. was from the early 1900s. Yeah. You know, you had fresh made sandwiches and you just go to a locker and just whatever, and you pull out a fresh made sandwich vending machine style from the early yeah. 1900s and now the qr codes make them seem so tech tech happy <laughs> and tech friendly and fancy <laughs> well and you bring up a really good point one of the things that drives these brands across all generations is service if you right. see that service bar on that very first chart that you showed for a lot of these brands it's very strong and for all of them i believe it's the strong guest component mm -hmm. of that overall score. So why are these brands winning so much? It 
has a lot to do with how they are affecting these guests um, when, when it comes to service, when it comes to making them feel yeah. like valued customers, when it comes to, as I said, maximizing whatever touch point you get with that guest on an individual basis. Um, that's right. never going to go away. QR codes right. or no QR codes or, you know, however it is that you, you, you want to think about um, what that next generation of digital engagement looks like. Right. All right. Before I ask you my last question, Robert, um, there have been a couple of questions about access to the data. Now, of course, everybody can access this report that we have mm -hmm. been going over um, live at NRN.com. But Robert, if anybody wanted to dig a little bit deeper, how could they do that? Well, they would want to get in touch with uh, somebody at Technomic uh, because this particular data set that is used to build this report is, uh, is available as a subscription service. And it's available to anybody. Um, this is information that we independently connect, collect. So there's nothing that's proprietary about it in any nature. Um, but you would want to get up. I would just suggest looking up technomic.com and thinking about where that Ignite consumer um, sort of trail leads you. That's, uh, you know, that's your first step. If you don't already have an established contact or rapport with somebody at Technomic, that's the best place to start. Um, and of course, people can email me, rburn at techdomic.com, and I can uh, point you in the proper direction too. Hopefully I won't get too many of those, but you never know. All right. So then my final question for you, Robert, is what should people take from this report? What, what do you think, if I'm a restaurant operator looking at this data, what do you think I should learn from it all? Well, service always matters. And my, I think my larger point is one that I continue to come back to because the changes that we see in, in restaurant drivers across all consumer groups, you know, they're, they're incremental unless something like a pandemic happens. Then all of a sudden technology becomes essential. It becomes important to everybody. But is it the most important thing to everybody? No way. Ultimately, what's important to you is that as a consumer, when you're making your decision about where to go, um, I, I, I want to know that I like the food. I want to know that the value proposition is, is um, within reason based on what you're offering, right? But I know I really want to know that I'm going to be treated well as an individual. Um, and, and I think that, that, as I said, executing on the fundamentals never goes out of style. Um, and if you think about a lot of these brands, you know, who are opting out of a lot of the things that are very much the zeitgeist, like the loyalty programs. Think about Texas Roadhouse. Now, they didn't appear anywhere here, and I was actually a little surprised to see that, but we know yeah. they have very powerful guest equity, and they're a very strong growth brand, right? All they do is grow. All they don't mm -hmm. do is third-party deliver. True, yeah. So, you know, they're, they're, that's their lane. That's what they do. They're like, if you want to order a cold steak from somebody else, knock yourselves out. Right. That's the messaging as far as I understand it. Um, so the fundamentals will never go out of style. Um, and I have yet to talk to anybody at any of the restaurant operators where, where I've had the pleasure of, of speaking or sharing conversations and whatnot that hasn't fully agreed a bajillion percent. You know, you can cast yourselves as, you know, the, the newest, the hottest, the this is the, the most high tech, all these different things. Um, if you're not treating your guests in a way that they really, truly love and appreciate um, and, and the food is not what maybe it should be based on the value proposition that you're creating, you're going to find you're going to struggle to have successful uh, success on a consistent basis. Yep.
That's great feedback. Robert Byrne, as always, I appreciate your help in uh, breaking down these numbers. Again, nrn.com, you can access all of this information uh, and dig deeper if you want to reach out to Robert. He is happy to answer your questions. Robert, thank you, and uh, we'll do it again sometime soon. I hope so. Thanks for giving me the microphone, even though I don't really have one. Next time I'm getting you one of these. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Sam. I really appreciate it, and thanks to everybody for listening. Have a wonderful day.